On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Neil Stewart about the ordinary means of grace. So we cover all sorts of topics like what are the ordinary means? Are there extraordinary means? Why or why not? What are the sacraments? How should they be used? Should we think of things like the word as more fundamental than the sacraments? How do they fit together? What does it look like to preach a felt Christ? How do we capture the affections? How does this spirituality fundamentally differ from other forms of spirituality? Are there any sort of benefits to thinking about the ordinary means of grace versus something else? What's the difference between the sacraments and sacramentalism and much, much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners back to another episode of the London Lyceum. This is Jordan Stefaniak, and... The London Lyceum is a place that's dedicated to serious thinking for serious church. So whether it's podcast or you're reading our stuff on, on our website or you're getting a copy of our journal or whatever it is, we want to promote thinking among Christians. And when we talk about thinking, we wanted to make sure that we were clear that it's not just an intellectual exercise for exercising of the mind alone. We also want to pair that with certain virtues, things like charity and curiosity, critical thinking, and for us, a cheerful confessionalism. So we want to have the right sort of James 3 disposition when we come to things where pursuing the intellectual life also requires the the heart. It requires uh, the affections and it requires a delight in what we are studying and learning, but it also uh, entails a seriousness of the matter. Uh, When we're talking about theology, that is not some uh, just normal thing that's out there where we're discussing what is a table or, or something else. We're exploring and understanding who God is, which is ultimately leading us to worship. So we just want to be careful with how we do all those things. So those are four things that we've sort of put out there. They're not all the virtues. It's just four C's. So it kind of worked out well together. Uh, so we like that as Baptists. We like to put those things together. But today I'm excited to talk to you guys, uh, talk to not you guys, but talk to Dr. Neil Stewart. And you guys will get to listen. Uh, Dr. Stewart's awesome uh, for several reasons. I first engaged him and and learned from him at the Reformation Worship Conference, which if you're not familiar with that, you need to check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can go click it and and listen. But Dr. Stewart gave a a sermon there. Um, I don't remember the title of it, but it was on Romans 8 and the Golden Chain. And it was it was very moving for me. It stirred me to to love Christ more deeply and to understand His love for me. So I ever since then have followed His work and what He's done. And for a long time coming, I've wanted to have him on the show to talk about the ordinary means of grace because I think he's a tremendous exemplar in understanding and applying those things. Um, I know it's small, but I love his church website talking about, uh, you know, ordinary means, extraordinary grace. I just love the way that that's put. So, Dr. Stewart, before we jump in, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, Who are you? How did you get in the ministry? And then um, what drew you to thinking and writing on a lot of these topics? Thank you very much, Jordan. It's a great delight and joy to be with you today on the London Lyceum podcast. My name is Neil Stewart. I'm the senior minister at Christ Covenant Church in Greensboro, North Carolina, which is a a member of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church in America. 
And I've been in America now for the best part of a quarter of a century. I come from Northern Ireland, and in Northern Ireland, I was a member of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. At that stage, Derek Thomas was the pastor there, and he left for America just before I came. He left for RTS Jackson. And then I was working as a pediatrician in the Royal Belfast Hospital for Sick Children. And I felt a call to ministry in the middle of my medical uh, school training. You, you go straight from high school to med school in the UK. So I left. Uh, so I, I began to feel a call to the ministry then. That matured over the next few years. And I was just about to start a PhD in medicine, which you'd call a PhD anyway here in America. And the Lord opened up an opportunity for me to come to uh, America and train for the gospel ministry at RTS Jackson. So back then in 1999, Catherine, my wife, and then I had one daughter, Hannah. We left the rainy climes of Northern Ireland and came to Jackson, Mississippi. And I had planned to go back to Northern Ireland after I finished my training, but in God's providence, I ended up staying. I, I, I pastored a small church in rural Mississippi, Yazoo City, out at the, at the, the gateway to the Delta, and was there four years. So it was a PCA congregation. Left there and went to Savannah, Georgia, for another PCA congregation. I pastored Kirk of the Isles for 10 years uh, there. And that's when I got involved at the Re Reformation Worship Conference with Dr. Hall. And then left there in 16 and came to Greensboro, North Carolina, to a small ARP church uh, in, in the city. And the last seven years have just been a whirlwind. The Lord has blessed in a way I've never seen before in my ministry that we doubled in size before COVID and then doubled again in size after COVID. And it's just been a, a crazy season of ministry. I have wonderful elders who are a large part of the secret of our growth. They lead the church very well and let me focus on uh, praying, preaching, and pastoring. And uh, the, 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 the gospel has just gone viral in the town, and it's been a wonderful thing to see, as we've seen uh, a host of liturgical ref refugees coming from some of the big box churches, uh, some theological refugees coming from some uh, other Presbyterian churches, shall we say, in the town that have become much more woke in their emphasis. And it's been a great delight to see. And over the past two decades, God's added to our family. We, we came here with one child. We now have six children. They all now have American accents and uh, are thoroughly rooted here. And uh, it's been a great delight to be in America. And I'm quite happy in my new home in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. Tremendous. That That's awesome. So let's start with just if we're going to talk about the ordinary means of grace, we usually like to start with some definitions on the podcast just to catch everybody up to speed what we're talking about. So when we mention terminology like the ordinary means of grace, what do we mean? And if there are ordinary means, are there extraordinary means? And what are those? Great question. So Gerhardus Voss speaks about a certain indefiniteness that, that makes it difficult to define the ordinary means of grace or to, or to just to even define sharply what we mean by the means of grace. Because in one sense, of course, anything God uses for my spiritual good or to promote my spiritual growth is a means of grace, right? And so it's, it's probably good to start off to break the term down into various concepts. What do we mean by grace? Well, of course, grace is an attribute of God. God is gracious in his being as part of his goodness. 
So God is gracious and merciful, which means he has the he has the wonderful penchant of giving his love to those who deserve his wrath. So it's not people often think of grace as God's love for the un, the undeserving. It's actually much better than that. Grace is God's love for the hell deserving. And so that kind of summarizes all of God's posture then towards his elect in time and eternity. So you can think of grace then in terms of God in his being, but people also speak of grace as in terms of God in action, as God reaches out into this world uh, through Christ and by the Holy Spirit uh, to redeem and rescue sinners. And in that sense, when we speak of the means of grace, properly speaking, it's the means of God giving grace to his elect. It's, it's, it's the special saving grace of God, not so much uh, the common grace of God that reformers uh, think about. So uh, the, the, the means of grace, you might say, are God's grace in action in the church. And so you go back, for example, to Titus 2, when Paul says the grace of God has appeared, and the, the Greek word is, is epiphaneo, which means it, it, you could say the grace of God has epiphanied, has become visible, has become tangible. And of course, he's alluding to Christ as God the Son stepped out of eternity into time in our human nature and fleshing himself. And so in that sense, Paul says, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, or all types of men, uh, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. It instructs us to look for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior who loved us and gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And so in that sense, um, it's the, the, the saving energy of God that comes to us through Christ and by his word and spirit. It's a, it's a force. I sometimes joke with the congregation in Star Wars. They say, may the force be with you. But the apostles say, uh, may the grace of God be with you. And so this, this saving grace of God comes to us. It regenerates us. It brings the justifying grace of Christ into our souls and the sanctifying grace of God and the assuring grace of God to nourish our union with Christ. So that's the that's uh, that's God's grace then impacting the sinner and turning him in to a, a saint. Uh, well, that that then begs another question. Then, if God's grace is in action in this world. Uh, and I want to come into contact with that grace. I want to experience that grace. I want to get that grace. Where do I go to get it? What are the means of grace? Or as the reformers spoke, the media gratia, the, the, uh, the, 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 the where, where does God mediate his grace to me? And the reformers spoke more of the ordinary means of grace than the extraordinary means of grace. Um, but I, I, you could speak of the extraordinary means of grace in terms of out of the norm, right? 
uh, and the ordinary means of grace. His word doesn't God normally meet people with his grace. So out of the norm, the extraordinary means of grace would, would be things like miracles, uh, visions, uh, how God sometimes regenerates infants in the womb. That is not normal, but it clearly happened with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, uh, Mary says that the, 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 the life in me rejoices in the presence of God, my Savior. And so was, uh, sorry, uh, Elizabeth said that about John the Baptist. And so was, as Elizabeth pregnant with John meets uh, Mary pregnant with God the Son, uh, the baby leaps with joy in the womb. And joy, of course, is a faith emotion. Uh, the unregenerate cannot feel joy in the presence of Christ, but John did. And so we assume that John was full of the Holy Spirit, as God promised, from his womb. How did that happen? Well, it, it, John clearly did not receive the ordinary means of grace. Something extraordinary happened to the lad that called him out of darkness into light. And so that, in that sense, he received grace in an extraordinary fashion. Uh, whereas grace, the ordinary means of grace, refers, you might say, to... Uh, the routine, dependable, everyday donation of grace from God the Father, through God the Son, and by God the Holy Spirit. In one sense, it's like providence, right? You've got extraordinary providence, which is miracles happening. And then you've got the ordinary, everyday providence of just things like gravity, the laws of thermodynamics and molecular and nuclear physics, which we... <laughs> We, we say they're ordinary, but they're amazing. Uh, but God uses these things to hold the universe together. But, but those forces aren't sui generis. They don't just kind of, they aren't there by themselves. That They're sustained by Christ as he upholds the universe by the word of his power in his ordinary, everyday providence. And if Christ took his hands away, the universe would return to the nothing from which it was created and so those natural laws you might say in the universe are god's ordinary everyday providence well god also has ordinary everyday grace a means of grace whereby he conveys grace to uh sinners and the reformers would say that uh the the, the ordinary means of grace fall out into two or or perhaps three things you've got the word which is the always the fundamental means of grace You've got the sacraments and uh, the British divines also added um, prayer. The, the, the continental divines tended to, to limit it to the word and sacraments. Very helpful. So for a long time, I felt like I was always searching for extraordinary grace. And that caused me a lot of anxiety and a lot of pressure. And when I found out and was informed and explained about the ordinary means, it was, a, it was really uh, quite assuring to me. And, but now, sometimes when I go and share the concept of ordinary means of grace to, to others who are in more traditional evangelical segments, the terminology throws them off. And they think, oh, this is Roman Catholicism. Means of grace means that I am somehow... Um, Apart from my own, I guess, uh, faith or anything, I'm getting some sort of justifying or some other just non-reformed understanding of how grace comes to me. Do you experience that? And do you, do you have a way of explaining it? Like, no, the ordinary means of grace is not like the Catholic sacramentalist sort of approach. It's something else. Uh, 
So very good. Yes, modern evangelicalism, in a sense, is a very free-spirited movement, and we can maybe talk about that later in the podcast. But but they tend to be, be very anti-authoritarian. They tend to go with the flow. Um, worship is much more about what what do I like doing in worship? How do I enjoy worship? Whereas, of course, the reformers would say, no, no, the, the greater question is what, what does God want in worship and how is God pleased to work? But the, the modern evangelical movement often, you know, stresses the, 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 the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. It, it's, it's their kind of patron saint in the Trinity. And they focus upon him, I think, in an unnatural and, 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 and an unwise way. And so they, they I think, fear that to, to, speak, to speak about the means of grace almost ties the Holy Spirit down as if he can't work through other things. Um, but of course, we remember in First Corinthians fourteen, Paul. I remember hearing Legan Duncan speak about this, and it just blew my mind. He said, "God is so concerned for order in the church; he even orders the operations of the Holy Spirit." You, when prophets speak, you can have two at the most three, and if there's a fourth one, and he's bursting, he's got a word from the Holy Spirit. And he said, no, this is what God wants this. God's given me this word. I've got to speak it today. Paul says, no, two, three, you're the fourth guy. Hold your peace. Come back next week. And God legislates even how the Holy Spirit will operate in in, in worship. And, and in that sense, it's wonderful that you said it's freeing because it, rather than actually constraining um, our liberty, it actually unleashes it because it's a bit like a train on, on, on the train tracks. You know, the train tracks are, in one sense, hem the locomotive in. It, it prevents the locomotive going in certain directions. That's a good thing. If the locomotive comes off the tracks, it's derailed and becomes a force for chaos and destruction, not for good. And so, in a sense, God takes the guessing game out of getting grace. If you want to get grace, where do you go? You go where God has promised to be. He's promised to be in his word. He's promised to be in the sacraments. And he's also, I think, promised to hear us and be with us when we pray. That's good. So when we talk about the sacraments, we what do we mean by that and how should they be used? Is the terminology of sacraments better than ordinances or something else? Um, those sort of things. Okay, that's a good question. Um, so sacraments, so the, the term sacrament itself is a little bit controversial right because it's not found in scripture uh, well not found least in our english translation it goes back of course to the vulgate and jerome's translation of the the greek word mysterion and mystery he translated that as a sacrament uh, great is the sacrament of godliness it says in first uh, timothy three sixteen in the the vulgate uh, and there's also some connections to the reformers when he back even beyond uh, Jerome to the early church and the, the, the Greco-Roman culture of the New Testament. And sacrament was used as an earnest money. So if you and I were going into a lawsuit, uh, you would you would pony up $500 and I would pony up $500. Whoever won the suit got the $1,000, as it were. Um, it was also used of the Roman... Um, the, the Roman centurions, when they took their oath of office, it was called a sacramentum. They were they were a, a, pledging allegiance to Caesar and the Roman army. 
and the reformers saw in some sense the sacrament as a time when we are pledging our allegiance to God uh, in in baptism and also in uh, the Lord's the Lord's Supper. So the term sacrament itself can be more or less helpful. Of course, the reformers all defined it as a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. And that that language goes all the way back to Augustine, who, who spoke of the, the sacrament as a visible word, a, a visible form of an invisible grace, a sign of a holy thing he spoke of. Um, so there's the sign and the seal language. And Paul himself uses that language, of course, of baptism in Romans 4, when he speaks of it as a uh, the, 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 that Abraham received the sign of sacrament, uh, sorry, the sign of circumcision, which was a seal of the righteousness of faith that he had while still uncircumcised. So it's a sign and a seal of uh, the covenant of grace. Very good. So one question I have in follow-up to that is, how does the word preached relate to things like the sacraments or prayer is the word preached more fundamental in some sense than these other means where it's the primary one and everything else flows through it or are they connected in some sort of i don't know what the term is maybe i guess one would look sort of hierarchical and one would be more flat or egalitarian in some sense right great question so the church of rome was a sacra- um was engaged in sacramentalism and 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 they tended to see and they they of course expanded the number of sacraments uh, to seven they have uh, baptism they have confirmation they have penance they have marriage they have holy orders ordination extreme unction and there's a seventh there, which is which is eluding me at the moment. But that's the seven sacraments. And in the, in the Church of Rome, they see the sacraments as working in an ex opere operato fashion. So what that means, literally, the Latin phrase means out of the working it works. That there's a magical spiritual power inherent in the physicality of the sacraments that conveys grace to the worthy receiver. It, it, it actually has a magical power. And the, Refor- the Reformation changed all that. It, it, it moved away from the medieval Roman understanding of grace as a sacerdotal power in the thing uh, to a spiritual power by the spirit in the word. Uh, and and that's that, that's huge. It, it's the word behind the sacrament that actually conveys the power of the sacrament. And so the reformers spoke of the word as the 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 the, the, the energizing force in the sacrament. Luther speaks of the the supper as a visible word, and without the word, it becomes a dumb sign, right? And um, scripturally, you'll see that 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 so it's, it's the word really is the one that has the power. So, uh, isn't it a letter in First Thessalonians that Paul says that we are always thanking God that when you receive the word which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. 
So the word does its work in us. And so, as Voss says in his Reformed Dogmatics, uh, we do not acknowledge any working of God's grace other than in the orbit where the word of God from Scripture is present. God works sovereignly, but not in a disorderly or arbitrary manner. He has circumscribed the working of grace by the means of grace, and that means always comes fundamentally through the word, through the word. And so the sacraments have power uh, through the word. Now, interestingly as well, some of the other reformers would speak of uh, trials as a means of grace and fellowship as a means of grace. But the better reformers would say, yes, trials and fellowship are means of grace, but only so far as they draw our minds to the word of God. So that the power of fellowship, as Paul says in Romans and Ephesians 4, sorry, is that we speak the truth to one another in love. And that's the energizing force in fellowship. And likewise with trials, trials only have power as they draw our heart and our mind to the word. And it's the word that begins the work of reformation in our hearts by renewing us in the spirit of our mind. Uh, Burkhoff says the inspired scriptures constitute the princium cognoscendi, the fountainhead of all our theological knowledge. It, it's, it's through the, the mind that God engages and God engages our minds through the word. And uh, and as the sacraments come to us as a visible word, and only as they're they're connected to the word, do they have power in our souls. Which is why the the reformed confessions and the reformed denominations make such a big deal about the ministers being the ones who are lawfully allowed to officiate the Lord's Supper and baptism, not because we're some kind of new priesthood, but because. We are the ones who bring the word and to guarantee the word is always present when the sacrament is present. Only the ministers can officiate at the supper and baptism. That's that's very helpful. I, get, I feel like I hear that question all the time of why a lot of Reformed denominations do that. So that was really helpful. I, I would love for you to cash out a little bit more on preaching. So we were talking about before the recording uh, the concept of preaching a felt Christ and capturing affections in our preaching. And I'd love to hear a little bit about what that looks like and why it's so important that preaching also captures our affections. Right. So the Reformers spoke about the importance of the preached word. Um, so, for example, in question 89 of the Shorter Catechism, the question is, how is the word made effectual to salvation? And the answer the Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto uh, salvation. So what is it about preaching that uh, brings such power, right? Well, preaching, um, when the word is preached, it's not that we get a better Bible, and it doesn't become the Word of God in a Bartian sense. We don't get a better Bible, but we do get the Bible better. So whenever preaching occurs, something unique happens that 
that heaven and earth touch. The preacher stands, as John Stott says, between two worlds. And properly speaking, he ceases to be the one who is speaking. Christ preaches and speaks. So in Ephesians 2, for example, Paul makes the statement as he's talking to the Ephesians that Christ came and preached peace to you. Peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near the Gentiles and the Jews. But Christ was the one doing the preaching. How can that happen? You know, it's it's because uh, Christ never went to Ephesus in his human nature. What happened is the apostles were preaching there. Or Paul says in uh, Titus 1, as he's describing his apostolic ministry, what drives him? He says, I'm Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested. And the Greek literally says he manifested his word in the thing preached in the kerygma that when God's word is preached, his word becomes visible and palpable and tangible in a way that's extraordinary. And I think we all know that. And as I think as a preacher, as I look back over my life, when have I met God closest? Well, with one or two exceptions, when God came down and filled my devotions with an unusual felt sense of his presence. And that's 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 not the norm, right? Normally I'm praying and feeling as if my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Um, But there's there's a couple of times I can think back where as if God felt the room and I felt myself almost in in the Shekinah glory and just fell on the floor. But apart from those rare occasions, the times when I most predictably meet God and most palpably meet God is either under the preaching of God's word when somebody else is preaching or when I'm actually preaching myself in the unction of the Spirit and I feel myself, in a sense, filled with uh, the unction of God. Spurgeon made the comment once that if if, if he couldn't go to heaven, but he could choose how he would spend eternity. So he can't go to heaven. How would you spend eternity? Spurgeon said, without missing a beat, I would spend eternity in the sense I have when I'm preaching the Word of God in the power of the Spirit of God to the people of God. In that moment, he said, I feel myself caught up into the heavens and closer to God than any other time uh, during his earthly life. And so preaching brings um, God before the people. And in that sense, when I when I talk to young ministers about preaching, I, I tell them, you know, when you're preaching, you've got to understand what you're trying to do. You're not just explaining the Bible, which you are doing and you must do. You aren't just illustrating the Bible, which you also must do. You must turn the ear into the eye. And you aren't just applying the Bible. Your your fundamental goal in preaching is to confront men and women and boys and girls with the reality of God. It's a holy confrontation. It's what Lloyd-Jones said when he was asked once, what is the chief end of preaching? He said, it is to give men and women a sense of God and his presence. That's preaching, right? And so when we preach about God's love, our hearts should burst with a holy gladness. When we preach about God's wrath, we should feel the end of the, the hairs on our neck standing on end and the hairs of our congregation 
standing on end. When we preach about heaven, our, our congregations should find themselves wanting to go there with all the joy of a little boy running home from school for the holidays. When we preach upon the glories of Christ, the poor in our congregation should feel themselves to be the richest men in all the world, and the rich the millionaires in our congregations should feel the tattered poverty of all their millions. Isn't that what James meant when he said, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, right? When you die, you're leaving the appearance of poverty and you're going to, to the true wealth that's always been yours. And then he says that mystical statement, and let the rich brother boast in his humiliation. Because in like a flower of the field, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower fails and its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So he speaks about the, the, the rich man's death as a humiliation in, in terms of his, or he, should, he should boast now in his humiliation in terms of what he has now is only the appearance of wealth. And when he dies, he leaves the appearance of wealth behind and he goes to meet true glory. And these realities should be felt when we preach. And I think it's one of the it's one of the one of the concerns I have when I hear some of the students coming out of our reform seminaries. They have the head, but they they don't seem to have the heart. Right? And as as Whitfield or Warfield said about Calvin, it's the heart and not the head that makes the theologian. There's a wonderful quote by John Angel James uh, and he's talking about this, you know, this established minister from the establishment. And he's, you know, I can imagine him with that, you know, very pompous voice. We're gathered here today to worship God, that kind of person, you know. And he speaks to a minister, he speaks to an actor. Uh, and he says, how is it that our performances, which are but pictures of the imagination, produce so much of more effect than our sermons, which are all realities? And, and, and he says to the actor, whenever you speak about these fictions people leave your plays weeping but they don't leave my sermons weeping and the, the actor says in reply oh that's easy he says because we actors present fictions as if they were realities whereas you preach of realities as though they were fictions and that's a tremendous problem that i i think we need to deal with uh, as as reformed men because all we have is the word i mean the 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 big box evangelicalism, they have lights and big band and the smoke machine. At least they can entertain people if the word isn't powerful. But all we have is the word. And if when we preach it, it doesn't come with a felt sense of the glory of God. It'll be rather, well, ordinary. So uh, along the lines of these different, I guess, concepts of spirituality in, in general, you, you talk about the big box sort of evangelical culture with smoke and lights and all those things. What are the fundamental differences, in your opinion, between these approaches to the Christian life? And what might you say are the chief benefits to following along a more reformed traditional approach to spirituality? Right. So the and before I when I came, I came to the reformed faith in medical school. And before that, I was actually a member of a charismatic church and, and had, had, a, had a wonderful time there of fellowship and warmth and community. 
but as I look back at my time then and the organizing principle of that church and, and many other broadly evangelical churches that we see today, it seems to me that there's the assumption that if a man is saved, that as long as he's sincere in worship, whatever he does is acceptable with God. And so we, we just bring uh, our, our hearts to God and, and, and really do whatever we, we sing songs and so forth and there's a sermon. But it, it's much more free, right? You can do whatever you want. If you want to dance in worship or have people dancing as, a, as an act, as, a, as a, uh, an element of worship, liturgical dance, that, as long as you're doing it sincerely and there's some spiritual content, God can come and meet with us. We kind of interface with God on our terms and in our way. And that had an awful lot more in common with the Anabaptists and some of the mystical sects around the Reformation and afterwards in, in revivalism. But as I look at kind of the, that evangelical um, movement, um, I'm reminded of, of David Bebbington's famous definition of evangelicalism, that it's, it, it, which is very hard to define, it's kind of amorphous, but uh, he said it kind of coalesces around four um, experiences. Biblicism, the Bible is important. Um, Crucicentrism, the cross is important. Conversionism, conversion is important. And activism, we should be engaged in, you know, transforming culture and, and seeking to save the lost and make a difference in the world. Um, but those four lines of thought, Carl Truman says, I think it's in his book, The Creedal Imperative, that they're not fundamentally doctrinal. They're actually based more on, on our experience. So the experience of the Bible, we meet God in the Bible, but there's no definition of what is the Bible, what is inspiration, are the words inspired or just the ideas and so forth and so on. And you then you tend to get out of evangelicalism, the no creed, but the Bible movement, that we don't need doctrines, doctrines divide. Let's get back to the Bible. But of course, they forget that the most dangerous heretics have always believed the Bible. Uh, and they also underestimate their own creed. We all have a creed. Uh, we all have a, you know, when you start asking people, okay, let's talk about the cross. What does the cross do? How does the cross work? The moment you start answering that question, you're giving me your creed. And the only question then becomes, is your, is your creed biblical or not? Does it go far enough or not? And is it accurate or not? And is it written down or not? And so the evangelical church tends to have this kind of commitment to the Bible, but they eschew the importance of creeds and confessions and delimiting the length and the, lib the limits of orthodoxy. And that's huge because our creeds, they tell us, okay, this is true, but not just this is true, but you've got to believe all of these things to be true. So justification is more than forgiveness, as um, Tom Wright says. It, it, it's much more than that. It's also the imputation of Christ's righteousness received by faith alone. And um, Tom Wright denies the imputation of righteousness. And so our creeds uh, define you've got to have all of this to be orthodox uh, because false teachers are often known first by what they don't say, not just the errors that they do say. So our creeds define the, the, the length and the limits of orthodoxy and evangelicalism loses that and they tend to downplay doctrine and the importance of 
doctrine. And they tend to focus instead on ministry. So the church then becomes a place to experience revival and to get the lost saved. And so they become much more concerned about attracting the goats to church than actually feeding the sheep in church. I'm reminded of a famous quote by Spurgeon that the day will come when the church will stop hiring pastors, shepherds to feed the sheep, and they'll start hiring clowns to entertain the goats. And of course, the great concern then becomes that you may attract men to the church. The world may come to church, but the, but the greater question is, will God come to church? And that, of course, should always be our, our first concern and our first um, priority. And so as the church becomes then focused on the experience of men and, and attracting the goats and, 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 and rescuing them to some extent and, and, and being involved in transforming culture, the church then can get into this awful kind of mission creep where they lose the worship of God as their fundamental activity. As I tell my congregation, we do three things here. We reach up to God and worship. We reach into the church for discipleship and fellowship. We reach out to the world with the gospel. But when the church loses that clarity, um, ministry can become, it can mean anything. And, and, and slowly but surely you have this um, drift, this creep away from the Great Commission as the, as the church's fundamental outward ministry. And you fall into the trap of it becoming racial reconciliation or reconciling Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland, where I'm from, helping the poor, the whole wokeism of the woke gospel. And suddenly when you have a church that's focusing on the woke gospel, you end up having a message which fundamentally, if that's your goal, you know, bringing social justice to um, a divided land, your emphasis will start by necessity becoming on you know, the, that the church exists to rescue people from human injustice. And that's, of course, entirely wrong-headed. The church's mission is to rescue men and women from divine justice. As bad as getting what we don't deserve from other human beings is, and that is bad, the real threat against mankind is getting what we do deserve from God. And we have the gospel as the only answer for that problem. And when the church takes her eyes off that prize, um, she will cease to be the church in any meaningful form or fashion. And so modern evangelicalism then, downplaying doctrine, tends to lose a clearly defined gospel, a clearly defined worship service, and a clearly defined ministry. And it all then begins to unravel. Uh, and when you don't have a, you don't have a well-defined public means of grace, the church then becomes more and more individualistic. We, we tend to think about uh, the church as like, almost like a fast food restaurant where I can go and, and meet God if I want to, but I can also meet God at home or in the field or on the golf course with my Bible, you know, whatever it is. And, and it becomes much more focused on me, myself, and I, and my own spiritual experience. And so the church, it all begins to unravel into this am uh, amorphous glob of what Michael Horton calls Christless Christianity. Helpful. So one other question I want to pick your brain on a little bit is related to these sort of topics is what I think Ian Murray sort of defined as revival and revivalism. Um, how should we think about those two realities? Or should we 
I remember reading R. Scott Clark's book, Recovering the Reformed Confession, and he seemed to want to push against even a true sense of revival. Um, let's take Asbury as an example. I don't exactly know what happened there. Um, I've heard people give testimonies of the Lord's divine favor. I don't really know. Should we think these are workings of the Spirit? Is Does the Spirit work in these ways? Um, is this an example of an ex- possible extraordinary event outpouring of the Spirit or not? Um, should we just say, you know what, no, we don't want to have any of that sort of stuff. We just want to have the traditional ordinary means, and that's it. That's a great question. Um, so like you, I am not, I haven't, I, I've, I've been aware of the Asbury revival and I've been so busy here in local church ministry and I'm also the, the, the moderator of our presbytery. So I've just been um, flying tail to the wind. Uh, so I, I've been aware of the Asbury phenomenon, but I haven't paid too much attention to it. In one sense, American Christianity is a tale of two revivals. The first, or the, the first great awakening with Whitfield and Wesley and uh, Edwards and so forth. And then the second Great Awakening, which through men like uh, Charles Grandison Finney and others, and those two revivals were very, very different in their form and substance. And through both those revivals, there was concern in the Presbyterian Church you know, are these are these revivals a good thing? You had the old light and the new lights in the first Great Awakening, and then the old and new school kind of arising from the second Great Awakening. Um, you know, are revivals a good thing? I think it's clear that there are periods in history when God does pour out extraordinary reviving grace upon the church, uh, and it's also clear in the best of those times, the devil is active trying to get a foothold, trying to distract and and divide and uh, corrupt the movement. But the danger of revivalism is that re- that becomes the great secret, right? And you have, when I was in Mississippi, there were always local Baptist churches often having revival and the preachers would even speak, I'm going to go and preach revival in this place as if a man could come and preach a revival or, or cause a revival, which of course was one of Finney's errors, that if you can create the right atmosphere, you can push people over the edge and bring them to Christ. And that distracts. It's a little bit like um, spectacular prophecies have, in charismatic churches have been part of. You have this person that have a prophecy and will stand up. And often it's a thinly veiled retelling of a parable, like the parable of the sower, but it's put in new terms. And it comes to the congregation like fresh bread from God. Like, who wants a dusty old Bible when you can get a fresh prophetic word from the minister and so forth and so on? And revivals can be like that too. It can lead people away from the ordinary means and cause people to long for and hunger for extraordinary means and this is if i'm going to grow if i'm going to conquer sin habits whatever it is i need a special revival whereas in fact god's given us much more predictable ways of meeting him in the word in the sacraments and in prayer and when the church sidelines those or negates those she's losing the great ordinary ways god has determined are the best ways to meet him in extraordinary fashion. Very helpful. So, Dr. Stewart, this has been awesome. I've had a great time. I appreciate you walking us through all this stuff. We'll have to have you on again 
um, as we discuss more things related to preaching and to the life of the local church. So everybody's been listening. You should go check out his work and his ministry. Uh, I've found it incredibly encouraging um, and enriching. So thank you for doing what you're doing. Um, thank you for focusing on your own church as you have. I think that in itself is a great reminder for us to not get caught up in a lot of the more global events and take our eyes off what's actually right here in front of us, what the Lord has given us with our own uh, flesh and body where we're at and living to focus on those things and to continue to work in those areas. So thanks everybody for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money.